Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir. Perfect. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Partha Mohanram. He is the Value Investing Chair at the University of Toronto. I'll get him to give you the full title uh, when we come back. He's got some extraordinarily interesting research on fundamental analysis, share-based compensation, and uh, the discount rate. I'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Hi, Partha. How are you? I'm doing great, uh, Toby. Thanks a lot for having me on your podcast. Uh, uh, I just sort of stumbled on your podcast a month ago. This whole thing started off with me just making an offhand YouTube comment and... Uh, well, I'm glad you replied and I'm glad to be here. So. Well, you, you, your name was brought to my attention by uh, the practical quant, uh, Jack Forehand, who's, uh, who's a partner at Validia and in a podcast that we did. And he pointed out that the best performed strategy, uh, I think last year or the year before, was your G score. This is because they, they track a variety right. of strategies. And the, right. I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I think I said it was funny, and I, I, I didn't mean I didn't mean to offend you, but I I thought it was funny in the sense that uh, it's explicitly looking in the most expensive stocks. Exactly. So uh, if I can just sort of give you a little bit of history on that. By the way, I think I have met this gentleman or maybe one of his partners in like the mid two thousands because. If I'm not mistaken, they are based in Connecticut somewhere north That's of New right. York City. That's right. And they came down to Columbia to, to talk with me. This is just, a, I mean, so they don't really have, the thing about Validia is they don't really have formal relationships with these professors who publish papers. They just take it and interpret it as they as they want to. So, for example, my G-score paper is actually a long shot idea, but they're just focusing on the long side. And the idea has done phenomenally. And to be fair, the reason why the idea has done really well is not just because it's a great idea, it is, but... It's also because I think in general, right, value has not done well while growth has done well in the last decade. So that's kind of right. helped. So the, that rising tide has lifted, you know, this boat as well. So so the basic idea of that paper is, you know, everybody knows Piotrowski, at least not just academics. And so so I didn't start off as a valuation guy. So I got my PhD from Harvard. My, my thesis was in the area of disclosure. I got off more of sort of how do firms communicate and how do they sort of improve their information environment that was my area of research but i ended up teaching like fsa financial statement analysis and ratio analysis and also i got interested in valuation from a very practical perspective and i came across piotrowski's paper and i just loved that paper and uh, by the way i know joe really well so i'm not just saying this but but i do because i know him but uh, i like that paper because it was a very simple practical idea of applying stuff that people do and he basically said let's test fundamental analysis but let's test it in a setting where we know it should work like you know these are value stocks nobody looks at them so it's quite likely that there's information in the public domain financial statements that people just haven't bothered to look at and therefore it's not been impounded into prices so he does this if you just look at the f score right it's basically dupont analysis it's like are you profitable is your profitability growing is your asset turnover improving? Is your profit margin improving? 
and then some things per to pertinent to value stocks like uh, is your liquidity getting better is your solvency getting better uh, are you not doing stuff like issuing equity which is a sign of weakness and so those are all his signals right and then he shows that the stuff really works so his is like a simple test of fundamental analysis in a setting where you think it ought to work so when i saw his paper i had this thought experiment i said this is awesome but what if we think about the opposite quadrant what if we look at a setting where we think fundamental analysis should not work if it works in that setting it basically shows that there is value in fundamental analysis right showing it works in a setting where it ought to works is great but that's like setting a low bar so i was trying to set a really high bar and see if it can work for that so the other thing i i also noticed was that the f score doesn't work that well in growth stocks so i said let's try to see if i can tailor fundamental analysis for the purposes of growth stocks so obviously this notion that these firms are ignored and nobody's looking at them can no longer be true because these are firms that are in the public domain and people are looking at them they have a fair amount of analysts following following the business press institutional investors and so on and high prices and high prices too will probably those things are related right so but just because everybody's looking doesn't mean everybody's looking the right way so maybe it's a case of fools rush in everybody is like fallen for the hype so can we still apply the basics of fundamental analysis to separate the solid growth firms to the hype firms so if you think about uh, how petrosky and how most people used to sort firms into value and growth the most common ratio is the market to book or book to market right ratio so let's use the word book to market so petrosky uses high book to market firms so firms which have low market values relative to the book values and calls them value so i look at low book to market firms so i said if you're in the low book to market group let's try to see the guys who are in the low book to market group because there are some reasons why their book value is low versus the ones who are there because their market value is high ie overvalued so the ones who deserve to be there for accounting reasons like you know accounting depresses book values in certain cases when you have lots of r&d when you have lots of advertising and all these are things which create assets but these assets you're forced to expense and therefore these assets don't show up in your balance sheets and on your book value on the on the liability side so so many of my signals were tailored for some of these accounting sort of thing and the second sort of signals i introduced which are unique to my my um, signal was this notion of naive extrapolation that you know when firms do well people assume that that it's going to stay on forever right so if you have two firms both of which have a strong current performance but one of them has steady performance in the past the other one's performance has been variable the odds are the firm which has variable performance just got lucky and had a strong realization just here and you're going to see some reversals in the future so i also built some signals based on how stable your profitability and how stable your growth has been because these firms if you look at the ratio like a peg ratio right you talk about earnings and you talk about growth so you want both the earnings and the growth to have quality so i was trying to build signals on that so i came up with this index called g score and i basically showed that the g score strategy just like the petrosky f score strategy works pretty well if you back test it so the paper was written in 2005 so i think the analysis goes with data up to 2002 or something so uh but the one difference between petrosky and my paper is obviously petrosky is looking at value stocks which on average outperform the market so if you break his let's say the average value stock beats the market by 5% 
he breaks up that 5% into a 15% or a 20% and a negative 5%, and he gets a long shot on that. But you know, the short is not that crucial. You're getting a lot of action from the longs. On my side, we know that at least at that point of time, the average growth stock underperforms the market by 5%. So I'm breaking up that minus 5% into a plus 5% and a minus 20, 15%. So most of your actions are going to come from the short side. So to get the maximum bang for buck, at least that was the idea then, uh, you need to short. Now, as things have gone on, we know that this decade has of the first one and a half decades of the new millennium has been very different. Growth stocks have actually done very well. And that's probably helped the performance of something like G-Score, as the folks in Validity have shown. It's done really well on a long-only side uh, approach, right? But even there, right? If you had gone long on just growth stocks, like the book-to-market ratio, you wouldn't have done as well as if you had gone long on the book-to-market ratio conditioned by G-score, which says that, you know what, let's focus on growth stocks which deserve their valuations. So if you will just indulge me, I love using these sort of corny analogies, right? So what Piotrowski does is Piotrowski finds diamonds in the rough. Like you know, these firms have rough valuations. He finds the diamonds among them. What I do is I separate out the real diamonds. So these firms all have diamond valuations. I tell you these are the real diamonds and the rest of these are cubic zirconia, right? That's my strategy, right? The real diamonds are the ones who deserve diamond valuations. The rest of the firms have diamond valuations, but these are, you know, cubic zirconia. So that's the analogy I use to, to talk about the differences between the F-score and the G-score approach. It's a, it's a fascinating line of inquiry because it's reasonably well known that the reason that people invest in the glamour end of the market is because they tend to have these lottery ticket properties where all of the very best companies over time never really get cheap enough to fall into the value bucket. They tend to stay in that glamour. And you can think of examples like Walmart, Microsoft, uh, many of those sort of companies never get, fundament, get never get cheap on fundamentals. And so that's why folks behaviorally tend to tend to traffic in the glamour stocks even though they know as a cohort right. they underperform so right. if you can separate out the diamonds from the cubic zirconia as you as you call it right. from that group that really is so that's the holy grail of that kind of end of the right. of the market so what does your g score what does it do how how, how does it differ from the f score so the main difference is, uh, so, so there are two fundamental differences, right? You know, F-score does a deep dive into ratio analysis because uh, many firms in the values, uh, they've been around for a long time. They're more likely to be in like sectors like manufacturing and all those kinds of things. So your conventional DuPont-based ratio analysis actually works very well. And also, he uses a time series approach. He's comparing the firm to itself because he's trying to look for signs of recovery. Like, you know, this is a firm which has a bad valuation, but maybe this is different from the rest of the firms because it's actually showing positive momentum. So it's time series uh, approach and a full DuPont. My approach, I don't use a full DuPont analysis because at least when I was looking at this, the uh, paper like 15 or 16 years ago when I was working on it, uh, many of these firms, and I haven't gone deep dive into it, so I don't know if it's true right now, uh, Many of these firms are not necessary. They're very often in the early stages of their life. I mean, not, not everything's a Walmart. If you look at many of them, they're also like firms which have gone IPO in the last five years. And so you have much more young firms. And so their operations by nature are extremely unstable. So year by year comparisons are actually deceptive. Like you could have a firm whose losses could be worsening, but it's actually doing well. 
because it's like trying to build market share or something like that, right? So doing time series comparisons are a little fraught. So what I did was I did within industry cross-sectional comparisons. That is among the low book to market firms in this industry, and I think I used SIC code or something, which firms are doing better on this signal and which firms are doing worse on that signal. That's the first thing I did. Second thing is because of the sort of nascent nature of the operations, I didn't do a deep dive into ratios. So I just looked at, are you profitable? Uh, how are you doing on earnings? How are you doing on cash flow? So I did just very, very basic profitability. And then I had these signals related to these naive extrapolations. So uh, how stable is your earnings growth or how stable is your uh, um, earnings, like, you know, your ROA or something. Uh, and use that if you're high on stability, you get a one or I think I made it continuous, but I, I don't really remember the exact uh, uh, if you're high or above, no, no. If you're above the industry median, you get a one. If you're below the industry median, you get a zero or something is how I did it. So actually the G score is a little more computationally intensive. The F score is really easy to do, but it's not difficult, but it's a little more computationally intensive. And the last thing is I introduced these accounting-based signals, right? You know, are you investing in R&D? Are you interest, investing in advertising? Are you investing in CapEx? For two reasons. Number one, in the case of advertising and R&D, it's clear there's an accounting reason why it depresses your book-to-market ratio. So you want the low B firms over the high M firms. In addition, for something like CapEx, right, these are firms which are being valued for growth. So you want firms which are investing in growth. So things like R&D, advertising, and CapEx means you're a firm which is doing stuff to ensure that the future is going to be bigger and brighter and more profitable than the present. So even if your present is depressed, you know that this you know, is a harbinger of good things to happen in the future. So that's the justification for these three kinds of signals. I think Piotrowski had nine signals. I believe the G-score has eight signals, but fundamentally the construction is very similar. And basically what you want is your back testing. You want it to look like the skyline of Manhattan. You want to see a bunch of upward bars with very few negative bars. So if you look at 20 years, you want the strategy to rarely have massive negative returns. Because when you have massive negative returns and you have massive positive returns, it's very difficult to say that this is mispricing. It's probably just risk, right? You take on more risk, you're going to get more return. So we kind of try to rule out uh, the the uh, mispricing, a risk-based explanation in addition to doing asset pricing tests. We're just looking at the prevalence of losses in your strategy and the losses hardly ever happen. That's the first thing. Second thing is, most of the returns are concentrated around future earnings announcements. So if you look at the one year, so this you look at this uh, performance in the next year, almost 30 or 40% of the returns comes around the three-day trading windows of the next four quarters, which means that consistently these firms are surprising positively, at least your longs are surprising positively around future earnings announcements, while your shorts are surprising negatively around future earnings announcements, which tells you that it's not risk. It's something to do with fundamentals, which the market has not impounded, but your strategy in a sense has. How are you assessing the stability of the earnings? I think, if I'm not mistaken, so this is a bit of a challenge because you need to have time series to do that, right? So if I'm if memory serves me right, and I have to, you know, I wrote the paper 16 years ago, and unlike other people, I have no co-author to blame, it's just me. So uh, I think I looked at the standard deviation of quarterly earnings for eight quarters. So for example, I would look at something like earnings divided by assets or something, So, and look at how, I just calculate a simple standard deviation of that across eight quarters. And again, people might say, hey, how can you compare that? It's so, so variable. Remember, I'm doing the comparison across industry. 
So you certainly can compare a ratio of that saying that among all firms in this particular SIC code, this firm had above median variability and therefore that's a bad thing. This firm had below median variability and therefore it's a good thing. So that's that's the way I code it. So, uh, are you applying this strategy in uh, in a in uh, is it being practically applied by anyone? Well, I, I I know I know for a fact. Okay, the first thing is the people ask me, do you apply it yourself? The answer is I don't. I'll tell I'll tell you why I don't because I just don't have the time to do this kind of stuff, and frankly, I don't have the money to do this kind of stuff. Right? You know, you need to. Uh, professors are well paid, but not that well paid, and uh, but more importantly. If you invest a lot in individual stocks like something like this, right, you need to be monitoring this thing on a pretty active basis. And I just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do that. So I just buy index funds or whatever, uh, which sort of line up with this whenever I have to like make decisions on my retirement accounts and so on and so forth. But I know for a fact that in addition to so somebody highlighted this Validia thing to me like a few years ago saying, hey, Partha, I found that you were listed as a guru among some really, really big names. And I said, come on, you're joking. And I said, I found that. And I found that really cool that these guys put me in a list along with like, you know, the Buffets and some really, really big names. And I was very kicked to see that. But the other thing is when you look at um, many uh, reports, and I come across some reports from some buy side investors, they do mention this 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 uh, this, this strategy from uh, time to time. And so I do know that this stuff is being used. But the thing is, it's in the public domain, right? So people can use it and I don't need to, I, I, I mean, it has nothing to do with me. So because I, uh, the thing is, the other, other question people ask me is, if your strategy is so good, why aren't you running a fund? Why are you working as a professor, right? My answer is different people get motivated by different things. I really like my job, you know. I like teaching, I like doing my research and I like highlighting these things. And uh, I'm not that motivated by the actual financial aspect of it. But I, I, I do believe that this stuff actually works because if you think about fundamental analysis, right? To me, it's like it's this uh, very strange uh, alchemy or amalgam of market efficiency and market inefficiency, right? It relies on market inefficiency because you say that firms do get out of whack. They move out of position. But it also relies on market efficiency because you assume that they're going to come back to the real value. So it's this belief in long-run market efficiency, but short-run market inefficiency, right? So, uh, so in some cases, it's not going to work. Like you know, there are many people who say that you know Amazon is incredibly overvalued, or Uber is incredibly, or not Uber, yeah, Uber is incredibly, uh, Uber or Tesla are incredibly overvalued. But uh, some valuations are likely to be stuck in that thing for whatever reason, right? So like, uh, again, I have this analogy here you cannot take things too literally suppose you're a chemist and you've studied chemistry and you have I'm, I'm going to go back to diamonds now you have 10 grams of diamonds in your right hand okay and somebody says I have 10 grams of coal right here it weighs the same it's the identical same chemical composition it's really inefficient that the market is valuing this 10 grams of diamonds at like a million dollars and this 10 grams of coal at 10 cents so I'm going to go long coal and I'm going to go short diamonds, right? That's not going to work because that inefficiency is baked in. And if you if you don't uh, agree with that, just try giving a significant other a coal ring instead of a diamond ring. It's not going to work, <laughs> right? So, so, so leaving out situations like that, fundamental analysis believes that 
there is some thing which causes stock price to deviate from value but eventually they find that value and if you can find that deviation systematically earlier and better than other people you can make some money on it that's that's the, that's and i i believe in that i i i certainly i'm not one of those university of chicago guys who say that i'm a harvard guy by the way you know you have this joke about this harvard mba and the chicago mba who are walking on the street and they they found a 100 dollar bill and the chicago guy says it's not possible and because market's efficient the harvard guy says okay i'll make market's efficient and he picked up the 100 dollar bill so <laughs> so that's my approach basically so. so so let's talk about your background a little bit you're you're uh, I, I didn't i didn't give you the full the full title but you're yes. the value chair at the university of toronto but you what's the full title there Okay, it's called the John H. Watson Chair in Value Investing. So John Watson is uh, like a large fund manager here in Canada. So this is uh, this is just uh, like you know universities have chaired professors and you know they have endowments. So this chair just sort of naturally fit my research. And so uh, you know they have a value investing program here. I'm actually not that involved in the teaching of value investing, although I teach a course on business analysis and valuation. So that's why this uh, this uh, chair kind of came to me. But my actual background is I'm a I'm a computer scientist. My undergraduate is I did a degree in computer science from IIT in India, and then I got my MBA uh, from this place called IIM, IIM Ahmedabad. So these are like the the premier uh, engineering and MBA institutes in India. And then I came to Harvard for my PhD. So my PhD was in this thing called business economics, which is this joint degree between economics and the business school. But within the business school, my area my interest kind of was that under Jensen, account. Michael Jensen. Well, Michael Jensen was certainly involved, but when I was there, he was already sort of kind of on his, uh, right. uh, towards the end. But among the other well-known people who are from this program are Michael Porter, for example. He's right. a graduate of the PhD uh, in business economics. And lots of people, uh, you know, a guy called Tarun Khanna, uh, he's very well-known at Harvard. And there are many other people, very successful uh, at all the universities. So within the business school, my area shifted more into accounting as opposed to finance because I found that if you're interested in doing firm-specific analysis, right, the accountants actually do it better than the finance people. I'll tell you why. Because finance people treat accounting as a black box. So if we just look at the whole DCF valuation approaches. Oh, I don't trust accounting. You know, let's get rid of every single accrual. Let's add back depreciation. Let's let's adjust for working capital. Even though a lot of research has shown that earnings are a much better predictor of value than cash flows, you still have this this thing. Everything has to be done in terms of cash flows. So I ended up going into accounting because I found that especially at the firm level finance people are very interested in the markets as a whole like you know uh, but if you're interested in understanding what's happening at the firm level you cannot be agnostic or even worse completely ignorant about uh, uh, accounting matters like I had a finance prof actually came to me and said Partha is depreciation an asset or a liability <laughs> I said depreciation is not even on the balance sheet it's on the income statement and there's something called accumulated depreciation which happens to be a contra asset so you, I mean this is the extent to which sometimes I mean it's a really really top people in finance and they they say oh I don't care I just do everything in terms of cash flow so but that can lead to bad uh, decisions because I think understanding the accounting, is very important because otherwise you do things very mechanically, right? You take the number as given and you just blindly apply a multiple to it, whether it's an EBITDA multiple or a PE multiple and stuff without worrying about how that E came into being, you know, so. Uh, you, one of your other papers that I read that I really enjoyed, combining value and quality, which is something that I try to do as well. And I, I right. sometimes find it difficult to believe that the two are separated because I don't know how you get the value without the quality, but 
perhaps you could take us through that uh, that paper. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know what? So if you look at if you look at the fundamental analysis, and I'm taking more of an academic approach here because I'm sure practitioners do both, right? If you look at papers like my uh, G score or Petrosky's F score, these are papers which are looking for quality. Like you know, they're looking for signals of fundamental strength or weakness, right? But then there are papers like, you know, there's a whole, uh, like Frankel and Lee had this paper on this V2P ratio where they're trying to estimate the intrinsic value of the firm, you know, using some sort of valuation model and you, you use the forecast and stuff. And they come to the, they create this ratio called the V2P ratio where it's value to price. And if the V2P ratio is high, that's an undervalued firm because the value is much higher than price. So these firms focus on value, but they're just focusing it on some very basic summary statistics like earnings forecast or something and some model of extrapolation but so they're not they're not focusing on quality paper like mine and Piotrowski's paper focuses on quality but doesn't focus on valuation like we're not really I mean other than just looking at the book to market ratio as a signal of overall valuation but we're not looking at relative to your uh, forecast how and and prospects how highly valued you are you're just saying, on average, if the market is not getting it, I think there's going to be some undervalued firms here. So you would think that these two signals are highly correlated positively. It turns out the correlation is negative. Okay, and the answer is actually very intuitive. We think about it, right? Quality is not cheap, right? If you want to get a Tesla, you have to pay Tesla prices for it, right? If you want to get high-quality products, you go to uh, Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom. I know one of them went bankrupt, but at least you used to. Not to Walmart, not to. Uh, so, the problem is, quality is expensive. So you either have to pay a price for quality, or you got to put up with crap, lower quality stuff. So I'm going to give you another analogy again. I'm sorry, I have this really no, please uh, go ahead bad habit of using analogies. I call this the TJ Maxx school of investing. Why do you shop at TJ Maxx? You shop at TJ Maxx because you want to get the sort of stuff you used to get at. Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom, but it's sitting on a rack. It's the brand name product, but it's 60% off. So you want to go and say, I snagged, or outlet shopping, right? I snagged this Hugo Boss jacket, which would have cost me 300 bucks. I paid 70 bucks for it and stuff. So what you want is, because on average, the Hugo Boss jacket is going to be very expensive because it is quality, right? So you, the problem with quality is there is, when you get high quality stocks, there's not too much alpha there because it's already priced in. And the problem with, low price stocks is the reason why they're low price because most of them are crap. So what you want is you want the the stock which is high quality but has reasonable valuation as your long. So this is your on-sale merchandise at TJ Maxx should be your long. And I'm sure you can find some really overpriced useless stuff on full price at Nordstrom. That should be your short. Like a full of moth holes. Yes, it's fully valued, but it's really not a very good stock, right? So that should be your short. So we try to combine these two. And by the way, I'm not the first one to do it. If you look at some of these, the Greenblatt's magic formula or even the fundamentals of Graham and Dodd, what they do, many of the signals try to incorporate these two things. They do it sequentially, say, we let, let's do this, let's do that. But if you look at the correlation of these signals, this correlation is negative because these two things fight against each other. So when we did that paper, this this paper with my co-author Kevin, which was published a few years ago, I was trying to combine this. So we did, did two signals of quality. One was the Piotrowski F score. The second thing was my G score. 
and we did two two signals of uh, cheapness or uh, valuation one was this v to p ratio which is like i said it's a little technical the second thing is you took something very simple like the peg ratio right the peg ratio is something that people use like you know it's just a it's a heuristic it's not perfect but it actually does a reasonably good job especially if you're doing it in portfolios and stuff right so it's a price to earnings divided by the growth if your peg ratio is high it basically means that you are paying a lot for whatever growth you're getting if your peg ratio is low because remember the numerator is a pe ratio it's how much it's like how expensive something is how much are you paying for a dollar of earnings and the new denominator is growth. So why are you paying so much? Because there's growth. And therefore, there's going to be more earnings in the future, right? So we said, let's look at that, either this VP ratio and PEG as a determinant of uh, quality of uh, valuation or cheapness. And what we basically found was, um, firstly, these things are negatively correlated. Uh, high F-score firms and high G-score firms, these are high-quality firms, tend to have higher PEG ratios or lower VP ratios. That is, they are more highly valued. Conversely, uh, you know, for the lower F-score firms. Now, both these strategies individually work. Whereas the F-score strategy works uh, long short. The G-score strategy works long short. The VP and PEG strategies also work long short. But they are working against each other. So they're doing something very, very different. So the question is, if we, given that they are negatively correlated, if we can sort of make them work with each other, so obviously you look at the subsets. So let's go long not just in the F-score firms, but in the F-score, high F-score firms, which also have moderate valuations. And conversely, let's go short, not just in the low-quality stocks, but the low-quality stocks, which are also highly valued. And what we found was, obviously, your sample sizes get smaller because, like I said, these things are negatively correlated. So there are not that many high F-score firms which also have low valuations. But let's say you find those, and you also find the other group. We find that those hedge returns, they kind of, increase by a magnitude of like two or three times. Like instead of a 10% hedge return, you get a 25% hedge return. And one thing I must say is many of these returns actually have weakened in the last five, 10 years, but this is a mystery in finance. If you look at all what they call return generating processes, they've become much more random recently. But, but certainly it still doesn't produce negative returns. It's just that instead of the skyline of Manhattan, you probably have the skyline of Mumbai right now. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. It was one of the, I, th I think it came from the quality and value paper that you said that the efficacy of fundamental analysis has declined over the last decade. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? More people hunting, better computer power, something like I, I that? I think all of, this, all of those things are true. More people hunting, better computer power. There has been some transformational changes in disclosure, right? Like, for example... Uh, Earlier on, just think back to the 1980s, if you needed some financial statements or you needed to analyze 50, 100 companies together, you'd have to go download this. Or you forget download, you have to write to the company and get the annual report and stuff. Now you have something like Edgar. You have this thing called XBRL, which allows you to search inside Edgar. You have ways in which you can, like, you know, you can do machine learning, you can do all these kinds of things, right? So data extraction and data analysis has gotten better, I think, okay? Also, I think many of these account, so you look at, uh, many of the anomalies are weakened, by the way. It's not just like the accrual anomaly, which like, you know, Richard Stone is famous for, has essentially disappeared. So I think the quality of work by financial intermediaries has also improved. So actually, I have a paper on the accrual anomaly where we show that the accrual anomaly has essentially disappeared. So some researchers before me showed that one reason is people are actually investing in it and therefore it sort of got arbitraged away. But the second explanation, which I come up with my paper is, Analysts are now issuing cash flow forecasts. Analysts are issuing both earnings forecasts and cash flow forecasts. So basically, earlier on, 
if you are not working out on your earnings you could kind of manipulate the accruals and get your earnings but now you if you're being analyzed on both earnings and cash flows you can't do that because the accrual is a difference of the two so what i i think is all of that has essentially made markets a little more efficient and if the and obviously if markets are efficient trying to find inefficiencies and trying to find alphas is a little more difficult so. just for the listeners uh part of the accruals anomaly is where your earnings overstate your cash flow and there needs to be a exactly. balancing uh exactly. asset created and that it's accrued as an asset so essentially uh, the accrual anomaly is it's a very very seminal paper written by richard sloan who's a professor now at university of southern california in 1995 or 6 i forget when he looked at this thing called accruals simply earnings minus cash flows divided by assets and then he sorted firms into high accruals and low accruals and he looked at future returns and he found that consistently high accrual firms had negative returns and low accrual firms had positive returns and what he showed was this is because earnings have two components they have an accrual cash flow component and an earnings uh, accrual component the cash flow component is likely to persist that's the real economic story the accrual comp- uh, component is likely to reverse like there are some periods where you have lots of receivables the next period you'll have less receivables or in some period you have lots of inventory because you're gearing up for an expansion next period you'll have less inventory and stuff right but the markets don't understand this differential persistence and he showed that you know you can earn like pretty consistent hedge returns and you could up to the mid 2000s but then like i said people started investing in it heavily so you had many of these uh, quant quant funds it's it's something so so easy to sort of uh, set up that many of these quant funds are investing in it so if you look at the aum going into these kinds of quantitative strategies that kind of rose exponentially as the sacral analysis uh, uh, strategy declined and then you had this other, other explanation like i came up with which is that the reason why you might get misvalued and investors get misled has gone away because now people are actually paying attention to these that additional these scrutiny keeps the yes. uh, managers a little more honest absolutely yeah. Uh, one of your papers that uh, it, it, I'm, I'm, I discovered it after you after you got in contact with me, but I'm glad that I did because it's it's a it's an issue that I think is particularly uh, important right now, and that's share based compensation. Uh, basically, you show that higher share based compensation uh, leads to lower returns, but le- but the the way that you get there is by higher valuations. Uh, perhaps I'm, I'm Perhaps yeah, better if you describe it. No, I think it's a pretty fair explanation. So let me give you a genesis of how this paper came into being. Okay, so so I teach a business analysis and valuation, which basically is a financial statement analysis course. And so one of my students here from from Toronto, his name is Wu Yang Zhao. He's now a professor at the U, at UT Austin at the McComb School of Business. So he teaches the same thing. And he said, Hey, Partha, I was looking at this uh, uh, ca- uh, free cash flow calculation. And I found that different books do it differently. Like, you know, some people use cash flow operations and some uh, where they, they use the cash flow operations number and then they simply subtract out CapEx and, uh, you know, probably add back interest or something and you get free cash flow. Other people start with net income, subtract out depreciation and then do the changes in working capital and stuff and uh, uh, then the CapEx and all. And the two are different because how they treat these non-cash expenses is different. The second uh, approach uh, starts with net income and therefore it includes these non-cash expenses like stock-based compensation. It's the largest of them, by the way. The, first, the approach which starts from cash flows, if you look at your income statement, cash flow statement, right, you always add back these things like stock-based compensation and all because it's a non-cash expense. 
And so it systematically makes this free cash flow higher. The question is, which is the right one? And this is there's no there's no clear answer to that, right? Because yes, stock-based compensation is not a cash expense, and therefore it is right to add it back in the calculation of cash flow. But is it right to exclude it in the calculation of free cash flow? Not so sure. Because what is free cash flow? Free cash flow means that the company has this is the amount which is truly left over for the shareholders after you've taken into account all things you need for your future growth, right? Think about stock-based compensation, right? If you're giving a lot of stock-based compensation to your employees, now, we had this big controversy, but since 2005, it's an expense. It's an expense which you have to account for on your income statement. It is an expense because you are giving up something of value at a lower price to your employees. Now, when you exclude stock-based compensation, you're excluding the impact of the stock-based compensation on the current shareholders. And that impact can be twofold. Number one, there will be future dilution. You know, if, if a company does absolutely nothing and allows all these options to get exercised as and when they get exercised, your current shareholders will get diluted because they got to share this wealth of the company with these new shareholders who happen to be the employees of the company. The second thing, uh, you know, which is likely to happen is to prevent this dilution, your company, many companies, we look at many of these companies in tech and all, right? They're constantly repurchasing shares to prevent the dilution. How do you repurchase shares? You repurchase shares by using cash. So that cash is not free. It's being used to essentially service this thing. It's identical. The only difference is it's, it makes sense because instead of paying the guy, let's say you have the choice of paying somebody $100,000 in cash or you pay them $60,000 plus $40,000 worth of options. Yes, you save $40,000 in cash right now, but you're on the uh, you know book for it later on when you start repurchasing shares to prevent this guy from diluting your equity. So it's not a free cash flow. So we said, if that's the case, it must be the case that firm, and let's say markets ignore this, they have no clue. They take these numbers mechanically and they apply multiples and so on and so forth. They must be systematically overvaluing firms which have a lot of stock-based compensation. So we asked the question, is it the case that they're systematically overvaluing these companies? And so we looked at traditional measures of valuation, your PE ratios, your price to book ratios, price to sales ratios and stuff. And we found that yes, these ratios are higher. Now the obvious question is, yeah, but that's obvious. These firms are in tech and these guys are in industries which have higher valuation ratios. So this is, you're just showing that. So we control for that. We control for industry, we control for your growth and stuff. And we show even controlling for all of that, then you have stock-based compensation, systematically you have higher valuation ratios. And the next question is, if that's the case and if it's overvaluation, you should see the results in future returns. And we find that systematically these guys in future, if you look at the next one or two years, the returns tend to be a little lower because the markets eventually find out that, you know, these guys are not in a, in a sense, or they see the actions that they take to dilute their shareholders or the repurchases or whatever. We don't know the exact mechanism and we can't pinpoint exactly when the market sees the light. But if you look at a large sample, that's what we systematically find. And again, this goes back to the fact that if you really want to do fundamental analysis properly, you need three skills in my opinion, in terms of like, uh, knowledge of areas of business you need to understand business that is strategy and what makes it come so economics fundamentally right the economics of the industry and so on and so forth you obviously need to understand finance but the third thing which i think many people don't understand is you need to understand accounting you don't need to be a cpa but you need to understand the basics of what an income statement is what a balance sheet is what a cash flow statement is and how these things articulate with each other because if you don't get that understanding 
you are going to be the person who uses accounting numbers or as a black box and you're systematically going to get misled. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and just on that point, when I wrote a book in 2012 called Quantitative Value with a, uh, with a co-author and the, uh, one of the adjustments that we made to Pierre Trotsky was to include, uh, in addition to share purchases, we included share issuance. So we made it net share issuance. Oh, net. net. Okay. Just a, just a tiny little change, which, which slightly improves the performance. It improves, okay. okay and leads okay. to, leads to uh, a more intuitive output. The, the companies that come out, are, it, okay. otherwise you, you're favoring these companies that uh, right. tend to buy back a lot of stock, but often they're buying back just to tidy up the, exactly. the exactly. option issuance. Although to be fair, in Piotrowski's subset, right, value stocks, there probably aren't that many like tech companies and stuff. It's probably a bigger problem in, in the G-score subsample. I mean, if you look at that. So, but, but certainly if you're applying Piotrowski across the board to all firms, Certainly, I think that's certainly a valid uh, and probably a very good adjustment to make. Well, it's one of the things that I have observed too, that Piotrowski does quite well outside of that uh, book-to-market decile. It, it does reasonably well across the entire uh, portfolio. And if anything, it's held back a little bit by the book-to-market decile because that seems to be such a – they're very small firms and, it's right. a, and, it's a, and they're, they're not great companies in the first instance. Right, 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 right. But, but actually, if you think about it, that was part of Petrosky's idea. It's like, you know, you want to invest in these firms. Like, in, like, I, like going back to my analogy, right? You need the rough to find the diamonds, right? If you, so, so the pro, in fact, the reason why some of those things uh, continue to stay misvalued is simply because people are scared to get into investing there because they don't meet the cutoffs of size, or stock price or liquidity for you to want to go and invest. So. Uh, one of your other areas of research is the implied cost of capital. Uh, so let's just talk about that a little bit. What, what's, the, what, what's, the, what's the area of research? Okay. So, so the implied cost of capital is basically an idea which came about like in, in so again, the, the intersection of finance and accounting, I would say around 20 odd years ago. So some of the, let's say, well-known people who uh, you may, some of your listeners may have heard of is Charles Lee, who's now at Stanford, was one of the early guys there. Uh, and uh, so the basic idea is, um, it's like an IRR from a firm's perspective. Like, you know, let's say you have a firm which has a certain value, which is the stock price on the left-hand side. And the right-hand side are its future ca- flows, whatever. You can think of it in terms of future earnings or future cash flows, or it doesn't really matter. So what discount rate justifies this current stream of earnings. So for example, let's say I have a firm which has EPS of $1.50 and I expect the EPS to grow at like 8% for the next five years. And and then I have some, some projections about what's going to happen for the next how many ever years. Why is it worth whatever it's worth on the uh, in terms of the stock price. So what this implied cost of capital does, it, it uses some sort of a model to say, okay, this is what I think the current forecast for the next five, because typically you get forecast for three or four years. You've got to make some assumptions about what happens from year five to year infinity, because that's what the valuation horizon is. So you've got to make some sort of a terminal value assumption. And then say, given this stream of cash flows, what must the discount rate be? So in a sense, if you think about valuation, it's inverting the valuation process. Normally, the way valuation works is you're given the cash flows, you're given the discount rate, you come up with a value and you compare value to price and say this firm is undervalued or overvalued. This one is saying that, no, no, I just want to know if this 
valuation model is, you think, reasonably representative, and if these forecasts are right, what must the implied cost of capital be? So initially, this paper was written, um, this is a very, very influential paper by uh, authors called Klaus and Thomas. This is Professor Jacob Thomas, who's a very well-known professor of, uh, of accounting, now at Yale, formerly at Columbia. So if you remember, if, you, if, if you've if you done an MBA like before, 1990, uh, the, before the 2000s, right? You know the CAPM model, they would tell you that use a market premium of 7 to 8%. That was extremely common. But then if you look at it recently, the market premium has come to more like 4%. So uh, and the, this, this paper essentially says that for whatever reason, the markets seem to be discounting uh, the average firm's earnings at like a 4% over the risk free rate. That seems to be the market premium. So this is the initial genesis of this implied cost of capital idea. But the cool thing about this particular idea is so I've done some work on on the, I don't want to get too technical here, but there are different ways of estimating the implied cost of capital. And there are some challenges as well. It's only as good as the quality of the inputs. If your forecasts are bad, if your model is bad, the implied cost of capital is going to be bad. So I've done a lot of research which tries to refine this, this model and tries to say that, okay, what's the best way of calculating this implied cost of capital? But the reason why I find this thing very interesting is I, I use uh, what I call a triangulation approach in my, I use this in my classroom, by the way, it's not research. I actually, I have a session on this implied cost of equity in my MBA class and the students love it. By the way, I also talk to them about F-score and G-score and all these things. I try to spend at least, out of my 12 sessions, at least two of them are related to research because I think many of us in academia have this ivory tower view of academia where we do our research uh, from nine to one and then we go teach from two to four and never the twain shall meet. And I think that's terrible because I think the reason why students come for uh, to do an MBA, spending all the money that they do, is not to learn stuff they could have gotten in the books. They should learn stuff, try to get some insights from your research as well. And that's what I try to do. So um, what I do in this, my class, is I introduce this thing called a triangulation approach where I say, let's calculate the implied cost of capital. I use a very simple formula for the implied cost of capital, which is the, if you take the peg ratio, right? If you take the square, okay, it's a little technical, but not much. Square root, of the reciprocal of the peg ratio. So basically, a square root of growth divided by the PE ratio. And I'm, by growth, I mean growth for the next five, 10 years. So if you go look at Yahoo Finance, right? They'll have this five-year growth, long-term growth is what analysts call it. You take the growth and divide it by the PE ratio and take the square root of that. That gives you a sort of heuristic for the implied cost of capital. If the ratio is too low or the ratio is too high, what does that mean? So I have this discussion with my students and we do this triangulation. If this ratio is too high, for instance, that is, if the implied cost of equity is like 12% for a firm, it means the market is discounting this firm's earnings extremely highly. So it means one of two things. It means the market thinks this firm is much more risky than you think it is. So maybe for whatever reason, your beta estimates are wrong or something, the market thinks the, uh, the firm is much more risky. Or it means the market is wrong. The firm is potentially mispriced. This is an undervalued firm. It's being over-discounted. Or the forecasts are wrong. Like the markets, like the analysts are being overly optimistic and they're saying this firm is going to grow at 40% for the next five years. And the market's saying, nah, I think this is all BS. It's not going to go that far. And therefore, I'm not considering your forecast. I'm going to discount it and I'll give you a lower price. So I try to set up this triangulation framework. And I have this very interesting exercise where we look at like usually we try to look at these highly valued firms in the tech sector. So every year we look at like Google and Twitter and Microsoft and 
Apple and say, what does this ICC tell us in terms of... So, for example, Twitter, if I was to ask you a question, what do you think the beta of Twitter is? I'd say it's uh, much higher than one, but I don't know. Okay. The beta of Twitter is like 0.6 or 0.7. Can you believe that? So, no. <laughs> suppose you, you, you do that... Uh, you do that mechanically. Let's say it's 0.6 as a beta, 0.7 as a beta. Apply a market premium of like 6%. That's 4.2. Okay. And currently the risk-free risk rate is 1%. So you're telling me that Twitter's cost of equity is 5.2%? That's absolutely meaningless, right? So, but you calculate this implied cost of equity for Twitter, the ICC will come out to be something like 8 or 9%. So the market's telling you, I don't believe this 0.7 beta. I think Twitter's much risk, which is exactly your insight, right? You would think, if you if you think the beta is 1.2 or 1.3, with a market premium of like 5 or 6%, that gets you to your 8.5%. So the market's telling you that your beta is wrong. So the implied cost of equity, is a, it's basically a sanity check, right? It's You can use it to say, I think something is wrong. Either this firm is, the other alternative is markets undervaluing Twitter. I don't know. I mean, you need to you need to invest your time and effort to figure out which of these three explanations holds. Well, there's some right? suggestion that that's the case because they've had uh, singers. Uh, Elliott Management has put a has taken a big position and raised some it, capital from outside. So it's exactly. entirely possible that's the case. This this ICC at least helps you kind of organize your thoughts, and it gives you the sort of one of three possibilities. And then you can figure out which of these is three is the sort of most applicable in the situation you happen to be in. That's very interesting. And I, I appreciate the example there. Um, if we're, final question, uh, you, you have some comments on pro forma earnings. Ah, <laughs> commenters like don't believe that. Very plain and simple, right? You know, uh, there's a, firstly, I'm not a, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan. Okay, this is my bias, right? I'm a professor of accounting. With all its flaws, I like gap accounting numbers, okay? I don't like performer earnings because, you know, for, there's, a, there's an expression EBBS, earnings before bad stuff, okay? <laughs> it's like, you know, that's basically, and, and, and the way companies present it is like, you know, guys, purely out of the goodness of my heart, just to make your life a little easier, I have stripped out these unnecessary and boring accounting terminologies that these guys at the SEC and the FASB force us to do. And I have given you this reality of our company. But in most cases, it presents an alternative reality where they're stripping out all things which are valid expenses. So performers really bother me. The second thing which bother me is this companies with recurring, non-recurring expenses, right? You know, you have a company. So for example, let's say you have a company which is being valued for its growth, but the growth is coming inorganically. It's coming through acquisitions, right? That's not a growth company. If I am 10 and you are 10 and tomorrow we are 20, that's not growth. Like that, that is, that is, but unfortunately, there is a lot of research which shows that markets don't understand the difference between organic and inorganic growth. And part of it is when firms are, let's say, growing inorganically and they have this, every year there's some merger which is taking place that merger will have some expenses which get taken out in the pro forma. So each time, you, if you ignore those expenses and yet value them for the growth which is coming because of those expenses, you're going to systematically overvalue these firms. And in systematically overvaluing these firms, you're also giving them free currency which they're going to use to make the next acquisition, right? And because the other thing which, really, uh, which is a well-known fact is the most popular negative NPV activity out there is mergers and acquisitions, 
right? If you think it, it's because people do it because they they the valuation is completely out of whack and nobody holds them up to it. And part of it is because the accounting is so uh, deliberately opaque and pro forma plays a role in it that nobody calls them out and say, but you said this and this is what the reality was. By then the world has moved on. There's been two more acquisitions. So there's no way you can even tell what actually has happened, you know, so. You know, to, just to put in your collection of anomalous things that have occurred over the last decade, one of them is that uh, mergers and acquisitions seem to have become positive NPV somewhere over the last five or 10 years. Well, I, like I said, it's, that's not something, I need to go look at the data. I'm not certain if It's a Michael Moberson comment. It's one of the, yeah. one of the things that I, there are a lot of things that uh, the, the market is sort of defying logic in very many ways. And that's one of yeah. another one, but I agree with I, you that it should be, they tend to overpay. Be, part of it could also be because nowadays, uh, let's say in general, if you take out the recent, let's say three, four months of uh, perturbations, right? You've been in a bull market for a long time. Right which means that you have cheap currency and it continues to be cheap, right? right? So in a sense, while the economy benefits from quantitative easing and cheap dollars, right? Firms benefit from their own cheap currency in terms of ability to do M&A, right? So that's, that's probably I the other thing. I think that's the reason. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely fascinating, Partha. If folks want to follow along with uh, your research, how do they do that? Uh, so uh, firstly, uh, two things. You know, just This is not just my research. Any professor, right? Just Google the, go to Google Scholar, right? Go to Google Scholar and type the professor's names. Invariably, you'll find all their papers, okay? So in my case, you can find my papers on three places. You can find it on Google Scholar. You can find it on this website called SSRN, the Social Science Research Network. Most of us post our yet-to-be-officially-published working papers there. Yeah, very so grateful for you doing that. SSRN. And... The third thing is you can just go look us up on our uh, look me up on my website. Just Google my name, Partha Mohan Ram at University of Toronto. I have almost all my papers are on my website, so you can download them and you know feel free. And if you need to uh, you know chat with me about my papers and and stuff, I'll be happy to do that. Like like any person, right? The first hour is free, and after that you can hire myself. <laughs> so. Uh, there are so many researchers who only put their papers up inside the paywalled uh, journal. So I was very happy to find that you have uh, the working papers in the Social Security oh, Research no, no, absolutely. Network. Absolutely. Like, you know, it's also many junior professors are scared to do that because they're afraid that, you know, of the review process and stuff. I've reached a stage in my career where the odd rejection of a paper doesn't really bother me anymore. So it's like, you know, I don't care. So it's okay. I also find that the, the earlier ones in the, the, the very early versions of the paper are the better versions of the paper and they sort of Probably. get... They get twisted a little bit as they get closer to publication. Yeah, it's the sometimes the, the refereeing process forces you to spend to, so much time on trying to rule out every other alternative explanation. So it makes it a little more academically rigorous, but from a uh, from a practitioner's perspective, right. very often the uh, early version can be the quite quite uh, the signal gets lost a little bit along the way. Probably, yeah. Pathamahanram, thank you very much. Oh, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, look forward to seeing this uh, podcast. <laughs>